Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready for Ivan Wright, okay? Bring him back. Let him direct. Just it's a, it's a mere couple to the fans. It says, look, we hear you. We heard you. We're sorry. We we will never bring Paul Feigen to do another one of these. Here's Ivan Reitman, and have a script originally by Dan originally by Dan Aykroyd. Keep the four women as you have them, but see, here's your dichotomy. It's going to be if you'll remember from the first movie uh, from um, the movie this past summer. They did a little bit where, like, oh, you know, people are really seeing ghosts. They only have uh, these sort of fakers to, you know, like shows like Ghost Hunters. Wouldn't it be funny if the if the Ghost Hunters actually picked up on Aaron and and uh, um, Melissa McCarthy's character's research that they published? You know, because remember they're supposed to kind of like stay in hiding and not actually be Ghostbusters. So, so. As academics, they're publishing, they're putting all this stuff out there. Wouldn't it be funny if, like, four guys, four, like, like macho, muscular bros took the research and became, like, Ghostbusters for hire, you know, and sort of played on that idea of, no, we're totally doing this for money and fame. And so you have the studious uh, academic women who have been told stay in hiding because we don't want mass hysteria now sort of in contrast with this macho, bro-tastic, we're only doing it for the money, Ghostbuster team, right? And you have them uh, sort of at war with one another. But what makes them have to come together is that Zool is coming. And bring back, what the hell is the character's name? Ivan Shandoa, Doendorf. Um, Sean talked about him on The Long Road to Ruin. Bring him into the script. They were going to use him for uh, for Ghostbusters 3 and Ghostbusters go, go to Hell. Let him be the guy that's going to bring Zool to the world and say, you know, the ghost, the boy Ghostbusters and the girl Ghostbusters have to get together. They're going to take on this guy to stop him from bringing Zool. And then we can go to a third movie where they're, 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 everyone's friendly and everyone's working together and they can move on and the bad guy is Gozer like they had planned. That's how you save Ghostbusters. Everyone will be happy. This way. No one will be happy with that. How? That's not a good idea. You're going to tell me, you're going to lie and tell me that's not a good idea. I don't think it can be saved on. I don't fundamentally believe the points you're trying to make are valid because I don't believe your premise to be a sound one. Chris Pratt, Chatham, uh, uh, I almost said Titus O'Neill, Channing Tatum, The Rock, and Tom Hardy. 
total brotastic. Uh, people, the guys love them. The, the 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 Ghostbuster nerds will be happy with that team, especially if they're all out there. Girls suck. Go back to the kitchen. We rule. Can you like imagine like an obnoxious Ghostbusters team only doing it for the money? People will love that idea. They will love it with it. I don't think anyone would see it because not enough people saw the first one, so it's utterly irrelevant. No, if you, I'm tell, first of all, you lend the rock. The, the, the Rock, as he has called himself, is uh, franchise Viagra, you see. If you lend his name I to could, something, it I agree with elevates. that. I don't think he would do it. Because if you oh, got The you. Rock, they would find some way to shoehorn Kevin Hart, and then everyone, and, and then I would have to wish horrible, flaming death on that entire cast. Just, 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 just think about this. Idea. I'm not saying we have to keep talking about this, but just think about this. Ivan Reitman, Dan Aykroyd, a bro team, Zool, Ivan Shenandoah, whatever the fuck the guy's name was, Ivor, what was the character's name? Remember? Why would they're I? Talking, in the first movie, when they're talking in the jail, and uh, it was like, Ivor Shando? Eh, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> huh? I, I, rem- I don't remember his name, but I remember the conversation. Okay. I'm telling you, you put those elements in there, all of a sudden, all those Ghostbusters fans that are just like, oh, fuck this thing, they'll get over it. They'll love the fact that if you're honoring the original material and you're doing fun things with it. I'm telling I you, think Ivan Reitman, they'll crap all over it because it will still wind up being terrible. <laughs> you think, why, why do you hate Ivan Reitman so much? I don't have anything against Ivan Reitman. I don't think, that co- I don't think the combination of personalities that you're proposing would work. I don't think Melissa McCarthy can take direction. I think all she does is improv when she's in front of a camera. I'll give you this. My idea is a a bit cast heavy. But I'm telling you, if if Mark Radley produces this next film film for Sony, and we run with this idea, intern who's currently listening to this podcast, this is how you save the Ghostbusters franchise. You, the next there one makes at least There is no 500. Ghostbusters franchise. There was a turd of a movie released about a month ago. I can also save the Sony Spider-Man um, franchise. Came Which up with is an idea not today. a thing anymore. Well, no, they still want to do it. And Never they're making mind a Peter Parker. Never mind Peter Parker. Fuck that guy. Let him be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let Tom Holland play him. No, the, the, Sony doesn't need to do franchises with him. Here's, they need to start a brand new Spider-Man franchise, only they need to have Spider-Gwen. Let, let the first movie be Spider-Gwen. Let, uh, instead of Peter Parker being the lizard, let him be Venom. Then let him die and have them have the, and then have Flash Thompson become Agent Venom for future movies that they can then spin off of Spider-Gwen. That's how you no say the Sony Spider-Man franchise. No one would pay to see the spinoffs of that. You'd have a hard enough time selling that original concept. The vast majority of the fan base... The, hang on. The vast majority of the movie-going public is not aware of anything beyond Peter Parker as Spider-Man. And thanks to Joe Quesada, they don't know him as anything other than mopey teenage Spider-Man. Well, that's not true. People know Miles Morales, but I figure... You know, well, then do Miles Morales and see if we can and try that. I don't think Spider Gwen is the way to go. No, you want if you're trying to capture the female audience, why not a, a pretty blonde white girl 
versus some Puerto Rican kid. Well, because, look, if we're pandering to minorities in this case, you go with Marlon Morales because uh, the Hispanic minority plays better in the liberal media. Miles Morales. No, pretty blonde white girl. If you're pan- if you're, Then the all they do is complain that she's not ethnic. What? All that, would, all that would come of that is a complaint that Spider-Gwen is Aryan, blonde, blue eyes, and white. And selling lots of tickets like hotcakes. Would not sell lots of tickets like hotcakes. I guarantee you, but if I took a I took an array of children, okay, ages uh, seven to thirteen, okay, and said, which movie would you rather see? Um, some teenage. The Puerto correct Rican, answer to that question is they're going to go see Spider-Man starring Tom Holland, as produced by the people at Marvel who know what they're doing. Did we start recording yet? Oh, yeah. We've been going for 10 minutes. Oh. I'm just happy to give you enough rope to hang yourself with on, you know, free air with these bizarre ideas of yours. Bizarre. Money-making is what they are. You just have no vision. You have no vision, sir. I have plenty of vision. You have none. Unfortunately, it's been obscured by being aimed at movies chosen by you. <laughs> you say that with a hate in your voice. <laughs> All right, start the show. Hello. Did we lose you? All right. So that that bit of, he'll be back maybe. <laughs> he warned me before the show started that his cable was a bit wonky. Um, however, we are, uh, we are not just trying to fix Sony franchises tonight. That was a bit of silliness on my part. Uh, those are really my ideas for fixing the Sony franchises. We are actually here to review Pete's Dragon tonight. Yes, Pete's Dragon, a boy and his dog, a boy and his dragon. A dragon, a dragon, I swear I saw a dragon, as Mickey Rooney once said. Uh, this is the remake of the 1977 classic. Starring uh, Robert Redford, Bryce Dallas Howard, Oakes Fegley, uh, Uno Lawrence, and Carl Urban, and an animated and an animated CGI dragon. Uh, they do not cast a real dragon for this. They all no such thing as dragons. Any case, uh, I got to see it over the weekend. Robert Winfrey saw it today, and we're going to talk about it tonight. Uh, let me first say that I am a huge fan of the 1977 original. I made my kids watch it recently, and um, they didn't quite get it. <laughs> my son was very excited because he likes dragons and dinosaurs and whatnot. So I was like, we're going to watch a movie called Peach Dragon. And he was like, oh, boy, dragons. And, you know, five minutes into the movie, both my kids are looking at me like, why are the dirty people singing? Um, I, I mean, I was one when the movie came out, and I was very, very young the first time I saw it uh, and could remember it. And I, I, maybe it's rose-colored glasses, maybe it's just because it's so, it's so tied to my youth. But I have such great affection for the original. So when I saw they were, make, they were remaking it, I was very curious. Now, this is obviously not a musical. None of their remakes are. You know, Cinderella was not a musical. The Jungle Book, obviously not a musical. Um, despite the fact that we have 
Christopher Walken, I want to be like you. Uh, doing his thing there. Uh, this is a just a straight take on the movie. Um, now, the 1977 version starts uh, takes place in the early 1900s. This is in the early 1980s. And what we have is a child who is five, who is on the road in the Pacific Northwest with his folks. They uh, tr- swerve out of the way of a deer. This causes them to have an accident. Well, my father always says, there's a choice between you and the animal. Hit the animal. <laughs> um, they, uh, they swerve out of the way. They flip the car. The parents die. And the boy gets out of the car. He is alone in the woods. Uh, he is surrounded by a pack of wolves. Uh, he runs into the woods. The dragon appears, scares away the wolves, takes the boy in, realizing he needs help. Uh, Pete has a children's book with him um, called Elliot Gets Lost, and he names the dragon Elliot. The next part of the movie uh, is just them in the woods. Uh, Over the next five to six years, uh, Elliot is there. uh, Sorry, Pete is there living with Elliot, and they are just out there. Uh, Some of the critics have said this, you know, the movie was part Jungle Book. This is the Jungle Book part of it. Um, they're just hanging out, you know, they make a tree house and a little cave and they're, they're hanging out there. Um, and time passes, you know, they, they survive, they become a little family, the two of them and the world turns. Now, like I said, it's five, six years later and we have a, uh, a lumber yard just outside the forest and they are looking to move deeper into the forest to cut down more trees. This is where we meet uh, Carl Urban, who is from the, basically the villain of the movie, for you know, such as such as there is a villain. Um, and we have uh, we meet the forest ranger Bryce Dallas Howard uh, and her husband West something I don't have a cast up just yet, but um, I believe uh, West Bentley plays her husband, and they have a daughter who's played by Emma Lawrence. Um, so, Una, so they, uh, they're cutting down trees and they happen to see, uh, Pete happens to catch Una, uh, I believe the character's name is Natalie. They happen to catch sight of one another. Um, so he's curious and he's kind of watching her. She sees him. He, he sees she sees him and he takes off. She goes after him. She ends up climbing a tree. She falls out of the tree and gets hurt. He goes to help her. Uh, this brings him in contact with uh, the human world. Um, they try to bring him out. He ends up hurting himself and getting knocked out. He finds himself in a hospital. I'm going to leave the story there for just a moment because now he's gone. Elliot goes after him and in doing so Carl Urban happens to catch wind of something out in there. Uh, not quite right. So he decides he's going to get a rifle and go hunting. You see, we're going to hunt whatever strange beast is in the woods. Back to Pete. Pete's in the hospital. Pete wakes up. Um, doesn't quite, you know, he's a little disoriented. Doesn't quite know where he is or what's going on. 
Uh, he escapes and, and tries to make a run for it. Uh, at this point, the cops are trying to figure out where this hell this kid came from and try to figure out where his parents are and all of that. So Pete goes, takes off out of the hospital. He's running down the street. He's jumping on buses. <laughs> He's jumping over signs. They finally have him backed in an alley. Uh, Pete ends up going home with Grace and Natalie. And, uh, you know, they kind of get him up to speed with his ADLs, you know, teach him how to brush his teeth and they read him a story and give him some clothes. And the whole idea is Grace says, okay, you know, if you come home with me tonight and tomorrow you can show me where you live and who this Elliot person is or what this, who this Elliot is. Um, that would be a good time to actually bring up the Robert Redford character, Mr. Meacham. He once saw a dragon and he's told children of his stories of the dragon that lives in the woods. And of course, you know, there comes a point where children grow to be adults and they no longer believe him. So he's a crazy old man. Well, as it turns out, Elliot drew a picture of, of, of rather Pete drew a picture of Elliot that Grace suddenly remembers, hey, isn't this, doesn't this resemble the story you told of the dragon that you saw? And he was like, yes, finally, I am validated. So the next day, Robert Redford uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, Natalie, and Pete all go back into the forest to, you know, prove that Elliot does in fact exist, and you know, show them where they live. Now, I'm gonna take a brief moment here, a brief pause for the cause. I just got a message from Robert, who told me that his internet died and is coming back. Fantastic. <laughs> Anywho, as we move on, um, so as a, when we last left Carl Urban and his hunting crew, uh, they, they, they found Elliot all right. <laughs> Elliot snots all over him and sends them running and bends the rifle, and it is a failed, a failed attempt. Um, they're going, this time, they're going back, and the plan is Carl Urban... His whole motivation is he just he, he wants something that he can call his. I believe, and I and I was a little woozy back <laughs> to work when this happened when I saw the movie. But as I recall, um, him and Wes Bentley are brothers, and I guess Wes Bentley is the one that runs the lumber mill. And him and Carl Urban are in somewhat of a slight conflict because Carl Urban just wants his own piece of the American dream. You know, he wants a, he wants something that'll define him, make him famous, something he can call his own. Um, and so if it's not going to be the lumber mill, then fuck it, it's going to be this, it's going to be this dragon, damn it. So he, uh, he gathers up your hunting crew. Uh, they get themselves some dart guns and they follow uh, our, our first crew into the forest. And they meet Elliot and uh, Natalie goes to pet and Elliot and all that. And it's all well and good. And then the, and then Carl Urban and his crew come out and dart the fuck out of them. <laughs> To bring them down. They they bring down uh, good old Elliot. Poor Elliot. Fill them full of tranquilizer darts they do. And I don't know, how much tranquilizer do you really need to bring down a dragon? Well, more than a horse, I would imagine. They shoot them a bunch. Uh, they successfully bring them down. And now Pete thinks she's been had. And, you know, he doesn't trust anybody. That whole thing. Um, oh, and by the way, 
Grace has to give him to social services because they found out that his parents are dead. So he's got to go into foster care. Okay. That's where we are at this point in the movie. So they bring Elliot back to town. They're going to put him in the lumber warehouse. Pete goes back to town. They're going to bring him to social services. Grace decides, well, we're going to skip all that for just a moment. We're, we're going to, hello? Yeah, I'm back. You know one? I, all right. I, I, I don't know. I, this is the problem. I'm a capitalist at heart, but this is the problem with functional monopolies is they are not necessarily mandated by the market to correct themselves when they suck. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm at the point of the movie where they've, where they've tranquilized, uh, tranquilized Elliot and they've brought him to the lumber yard. Grace has gone ahead and skipped bringing him to social services there at the lumber yard as well. And there's about to be a, uh, a bushel breakout as it were. Um, him and Natalie, this, this is my, one of my favorite lines of the movie comes up at this point. They're like, well, now you've got this dragon here and you've chained him to the bed of a truck. What are you going to do with him? I don't know. <laughs> and the uh, the state senator from The Wire, you know, the one that's famous for going, shit. Well, in this one, he plays sheriff. And he's like, you have no idea what you're going to do with this dragon, do you? He's like, he's going to make me famous. That's what he's going to do. Um, well, it doesn't matter because there's a whole deal where they're like, show me the dragon. Oh, I'll show you a dragon, all right. And by this point, by this point, Pete and Natalie have gotten the thing free. Um, or they've told him to go invisible. And so now everyone's thinking the dragon escapes through the window. It's still too drugged to, to go anywhere. It kind of raises its head and drops. Well, drop. he kind of sucks at flying. Yeah. So uh, Robert Redford, who is Mr. Meacham, says, you know, you kids move over. I'm going to drive this here truck. And we have our Boston breakout. They just, bam, knock the thing out. They knock everything everywhere. And they're on the run. So we've got two kids. A Robert Redford and a dragon and, a, and an 18-wheeler, and we are on the road. Now begins our our, our, our chase. Now everyone is is in a car and taking <laughs> taking a run at this dragon. Um, at one point, <laughs> one point, Carl Urban and uh, and his crew get in front of the truck. They try to block him on the bridge. It's like, oh, there's no way they'll run me over. And the the truck runs out of brakes. <laughs> runs out of brakes. The air brakes got disconnected when the fat ass dragon fell on the bed again. Oh, that's right, right, right. So they have no brakes, and so everyone dives out of the way, and they go plowing over the bridge and knocking over Carl Urban's car into the into the uh, into the trick. <laughs> it's a ravine, uh, it's and then like... Robert Redford destroys the engine of that truck by downshifting too suddenly in an effort to stop it. Which is what you're supposed right. to do. It's just, you, you kill on that engine. So they get but the now they have stop. no now means of getting away, and they're on the other hey, side of the bridge. For you. Hey, hey, you with the bad internet. I was doing this okay. I'm good. Can I finish? Yeah, yeah. Jesus. So, you know, um, it's not just the internet. Apparently, Skype and blog talk just will not get along on any sort of level. I try to call in with that function, and it just keeps telling me the call's failed. Uh-oh. So I'm stuck anyway. here on my handset, just kind of hating life at the moment. So Elliot hooks up. He gets his groove back. He shakes it off. 
he mounts the bridge and starts breathing fire on everything. He's just lighting up, you know, he's pissed and lighting everybody up. Um, unfortunately, the only two people he manages to hit are the two people not trying to kill him, which would be Grace and her husband, played by Wes Bentley. Um, Pete finally, you know, gets Elliot to stop and says, hey, control yourself, you know, you're, you're, I need them. He stops, but by that point, they've done enough damage to the bridge that the thing collapses. Grace and uh, Wes fall into the ravine, along with Elliot. We have a brief moment of, they die or didn't they? Covered oh, by a... It's a ploy for time. There's absolutely no way anyone in the theater I was in bought, and that includes the small children, mind you, bought that they were in peril. So there's this moment of tension where you don't know if they've died or not, including Elliot. And uh, but suddenly, heroically, Elliot saves the parents, brings them to Pete. Uh, Pete gets on top of Elliot. They take off. <laughs> They're gone. And they just leave everybody. They get into the forest. Um, they come to real, the realization that this isn't going to stop. They're going to keep coming after them. Elliot says, well, I can turn invisible. See, I'm good to go. I got, I got this covered. And Pete says, yeah, I don't. I can't turn invisible. And they come to the realization that Pete has to go back to the human world and he can't be with Elliot anymore. And Elliot's got to get the hell out of the forest. And it's a very sad, very maudlin moment. It made me cry. Um, You're a large baby. So I believe the word we're looking for is empathetic, you jerk. So, no, no, uh, no. There were, I have referred to you as empathetic many times when I believe that's the issue. In this case, I think you're just kind of a baby. Uh, hang on, I'm going to try some... calling in on the direct line again, since now I'm getting a different error message from Blog Talk, because, hey, hey fun time. So go ahead and finish up your plot synopsis, Mark. I'll be back in a second, I hope. Okay. Uh, so real quick, uh, as I said, they um, they uh, figure that they, you know, they, they can't be together anymore. Um, so Pete goes back to the human world. Elliot goes into you know deeper into the forest, possibly into the mountains. And um, Grace in turn adopts Pete. Now a year later, they go back out into the deep, deep woods. They head towards the mountains. And what do they find? They find Elliot living with a whole crew of dragons. All is well that ends well. Pete's got a family. Elliot's got a family of dragons. Everyone, can everyone you hear loves me? each other. I can hear you. Everyone loves Hello. each other, and we and we have a wonderful end of the movie. Yes, I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we're good. Good. Let's go see. Let, let's, let's see if this person can hear us. He's been waiting patiently for me to finish my uh, plot synopsis. Area code five ten. Harry Code 510, Oakland, can you hear us? We can hear you. Or not. Harry Code 510, what you got to say for yourself? And we are disconnected. There's enough disconnections going around tonight. We're going to close this one out in close this one out three, two, one. Hello? Sorry, go ahead. No, that's me. I thought I heard the first one. Yeah, there's a weird echo going on. All right, I'm dropping this one. And if you're from area code 510 and you're trying to call in, you have something to say, I can only encourage you to try again. Because some uh, blog talk is, well, it is 
as the much as I hate the phrase, it is what it is. All right. Let me go ahead and uh, since I, I had a chance to do the uh, plot synopsis, let me just quick wrap up by saying I really enjoyed this movie. It's a little it's a little slow going at first. It's very pretty. There are two things that the two best things about this movie are the visuals, um, the, the the landscape, the uh, the principal photography, uh, just the it, it's a. It is an ode to the Pacific Northwest. It looks gorgeous. Um, and the animation on, and the second thing was the animation on Elliot. Uh, I thought they did a hell of a job. I mean, you can't go photorealistic. There's no fucking thing as a dragon. But they did the best job they could. They brought it, I mean, there's been some remarks that there it's not as good as the Jungle Book. Well, again, it's not like you have a real dragon to draw from. But it gets very close. And more to the point, they gave the dragon a lot of texture. You know, people complained that it was furry and not scaly. Who cares? It looks great. They, they made, you know, considering the dragon's supposed to be, you know, basically like a dog. They did a good job of, I think, aping the way a dog behaves. And some of the best parts of the movies are Elliot's reaction shots. You know, what it does with its eyes uh, was better than what most of the actors in this movie did with the dialogue. Well, it's it's not great dialogue, to be fair. (laughs) Um, It's very simple. It's very straightforward. There's not a whole lot of twist to this movie. But like I said, the best parts of this movie were were the the scenery and Elliot's reactions to things. I really enjoyed the scenes where Pete and Elliot are are, are, are having some sort of interaction, and Elliot has to interact to what Pete... Elliot has to react to what Pete's saying. Uh... Look, I'll give Oak Spegley all the credit in the world. That's probably not an easy part for a kid to play. And he, he's a little too dead-eyed for me. But I thought he did a good job with, I guess, what they wanted out of him. You know, they, they're, they're trying to get him to emote. They're trying to get him to act with his eyes. And I think he did the best job he could. Um, I, I'll give it up to Bryce Dallas Howard. She does a much better job as this character than she did as last year's character in Jurassic World the bar is low. <laughs> um, and the, the, the rest of it, like I said, it's a very straightforward story. Uh, a little slow at first, and it starts to pick up once they, once uh, the Pete runs into Natalie, and the, you know that part of the plot gets going. Uh, and then the end is just sort of, you know, it's, you knew it was coming. They had to do something. And, but it, it was as straightforward and simple, and let's get this over with as you can possibly get. But as far as a boy and his dog stories go, uh, I really enjoyed this. I had myself a good cry a couple of times, and it's definitely one that I will probably buy when it comes on demand. Here to tell you why everything I just said is wrong and why this movie is garbage, Robert Winfrey. <laughs> You're a witness, sir. Why do you immediately assume I'm just going to oppose you on every point you just made? Did you oppose me on every point I make? I most certainly do not. I oppose you on your stupid points. You're opposing me now. Oh, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious. You and I have agreed frequently. I'm, I mean, are you just playing this up for shtick or what? <laughs> yeah, but mostly shtick. Okay. Uh, I probably killed it then by addressing it openly, didn't I? That's your job, sir. You are no cell Robert Winfrey. I know, I need my own little, like, Muppet character. I really do need to give up uh, Sam the Eagle as my Twitter avatar because Brian Stan is Sam the Eagle. No, you're more Drax the Destroyer. 
Uh, I don't like being compared to that particular individual. <laughs> and I'm not comparing you to Batista. But, no, you that know, would have been worse. If someone, if someone says, you know, uh, you know, that's going over your head, you're very likely to answer them. Nothing goes over my head. My, my reaction time is too quick. I would jump up and catch it. I understand metaphor. <laughs> So, what do you think of the movie, Robert? What I don't understand is, uh, you know, bizarre shtick that you guys do. It's like I don't understand its purpose. It, it, it the re- the functionality escapes me. The purpose escapes me, and consequently, I ignore it more often than not because I just don't get it. It doesn't do anything. Metaphor serves a purpose. Anyway, the, as for the movie. Uh, I, there's not a whole lot to negatively critique here. It's, I mean, this isn't a great movie. It's certainly passable. It seemed to entertain the other children in the theater that I saw it in. Several of them. Yeah, sure. Well, finish your point, but really quick. Go ahead. Ask your question. My, my points can wait. Well, I was wondering if it really did uh, entertain the kids in your. There was a, my, my theater was full though. It was one, it was one of the smaller theaters, um, one of the not the physical plant, but the within the multiplex. It was one of the smaller theaters in in in, in the place. You know, like it wasn't the IMAX theater. I, it was like, I don't know, maybe fifty seats, seats or so. Um, but there were a lot of families. I definitely saw a lot of kids there, and. I was wondering if they were entertained because some of the reviews I've seen is that the movie is so slow in the beginning and so quiet that I, that they suspected kids would have a hard time with it. And uh, there was clapping at the end of the movie that I saw, but I don't, but it's not like I was out there doing a consent, you know, taking a census of the children and thinking of what they thought. I was curious. Could you tell if the kids were really into it or not? Nah, there were only two or three in the theater that were the kind of obnoxious Walmart crying children. I didn't see any families get up and leave out of boredom or even like prolonged crying from children. So, you know, if they if the parents had to, you know, quietly keep the kids entertained through the first third of the movie, then they did so without my without alerting me, which I was very grateful for. You know, Mark. Whenever you put a movie like this on the uh, on the list, I, I die a little inside. Not because I hate kids' movies, but because I have to see the movie in a theater that will have a bunch of kids, and it just it. Oh, I I, I hate it so much. Why do you hate kids? They're loud. They're mobile. They require constant attention. They disrupt the viewing experience. They never sit still. Or at least mine does. That's just your little heathen who has not, who has clearly not been properly brought up. <laughs> well, he is too, and we are working on body training. We'll, think of a, we'll get there at some point. Just just is all You're batting 500 is all I'm saying. Thanks, I think. Well, to this point, you've got one kid that apparently doesn't defecate in public areas and one that does. So, I mean, <laughs> what's your. Well, one, uh, I think that's a pretty is, fair standard. 
wait a minute. One is five, fast, fastly approaching six, and the other one is two. I should hope the five-year-old doesn't shit in public. Jesus. Yes. Hence the batting 500. You're doing good with that one. Thanks. All right. I'm going to shut up so you can get through the rest of your points. Uh, it's, I agree with you about it being slow in parts. Uh, there's, there's a few writing issues in this movie that I want to address separately. Nothing major, mind you, just eh, things that could have been better uh, type of scenario. Uh, the acting is all acceptable. None of it's interesting, but it's all fine. The visual effects are great, with the exception of the bridge sequence. Uh, everything else is fine. I don't, I'm with you in that people complaining this doesn't look as good as the Jungle Book. Well, we're making up an animal from scratch. And, to, and adding to that, we're hybridizing one of the most fearsome creatures from mythology with man's best friend. I mean, there's a degree of error to be expected here. Uh, but I think they also did a pretty decent job of you know, incorporating a few physical effects with the dragon so that it's not all done with, uh, you know, so that it wasn't all digital. Uh, I think that's really all I got. I mean, again, it's a little slow in the beginning, but it's your very typical, very kind of, happy, sappy boy and his dog story. Well, okay. I asked you earlier and I don't, I don't want to upset you. So if this is a subject where you like, you'd rather not talk about it because it is painful. We'll just skip it. But I remember you telling me that you had a dog, have a dog and um, your dog brings about emotion in you or did. Um, and so I was, so I was really like expecting you to relate to this movie because it was a boy and his dog. So when I asked you earlier, did you get emotional? Was it because the writing itself didn't really take that out of you or you didn't see the, I mean, you've now mentioned it. So you did see it. I guess maybe that answers my own question, but I would have just felt like you would have related enough to a boy and his dog um, enough that what you saw in the movie would bring about some relative emotion. I was feeling apparently a bit more robotic than usual when I saw this movie. Also, and this is probably the big thing as far as generating emotion from me, I knew the ending. (laughs) I knew that, oh, they're going to say goodbye, but they're not really going to say goodbye. I mean, they may as well have just had a giant neon sign flashing above the entranceway into this theater. I know the (laughs) ending, so why am I going to be sad about them separating because, well, he's got to go live an hour further south with his real family, and the dragon moves off into the mountains to be with its own kind, but they still get together three times a week. What's sad about that? I don't believe they said three times a week. My, I am projecting a little bit onto that, sure, but my point stands. I knew that was not an actual goodbye, simply a transition, and consequently I reacted emotionally about the same as I do 
to any other moderately disconcerting transition? Strangely enough, I didn't get that brokenhearted when the kid's parents died. And I, and I think that was because of the way that it was done. They didn't, the, the kid is barely able to even recognize the fact that his parents are gone before they bring the walls into it. Not saying it was rushed. That was clearly deliberate. This they the didn't want to traumatize all the children in the audience, I imagine. So they, yeah, no, no, I, they oh, shot around it. Yeah. So I, so that's the thing. It's like, on the one hand, you don't give the kid, you don't give the, the death of the parents any time to resonate at all. So for, for a big crying baby like me, I, I didn't even have time to react to it because we were already, you know, we were already off to the, you know, off with the, with the wolves. And then Elliot shows up and we're off and running that way. Um, there was a couple of times though, throughout the movie where I got really sad. Um, oh, another one that broke my heart. When Elliot comes to the kid's house and he looks through the window and they're all sitting there family-like and they're reading Elliot Gets Lost and all Elliot knows is that, is that Pete looks happy and he looks cared for and he doesn't need him. You know, this is before all every, the chase and everything happens. So Elliot doesn't know if he's ever going to see Pete again. Um, and Pete and Elliot's just brokenhearted. Like, you know, oh, Pete doesn't love me anymore. I felt so bad. And this is what I mean by, like, you know, if you could give an animated character an Oscar. <laughs> they did such a great job of showing, because it wasn't just a dumb animal. This was an animal that clearly had feelings and a conscience and emotions, and emotions, feelings, same thing. Um, it it had a stake in the movie and when, and while, you know, the acting that they have Oaks Fegley do is mostly stare dead eyed into the camera, deliver dialogue like you're reading, you know, uh, ingredients in a cookbook. They gave a lot of emotion to the animated character. And so when he's staring at Pete in the house and you could see how sad he is, Oh, it broke my heart, Winfrey. It absolutely made me cry for an animated character. Um, I think that I had a I had a huge breakdown there where uh, I, I was having a hard time with the movie, and then then at the very end where you know Pete saying goodbye to Elliot. Um, <laughs> Elliot's desperately trying to convince them they can make this work. It was like, it was like watching a breakup. So it was sad. Sad for me, at least. Uh, but other than that, I don't have a whole lot. <laughs> no, I don't have a whole lot else to say either. I mean, they did their best with trying to create a villain out of Carl Urban, but again, and, and this goes to stuff you talk about um, on your old show, you know, um, the uh, uh, bad guy show, which is, do you, do you want to make him sympathetic or don't you? You know, the, the problem with the Carl Urban character is you you can see his point of view. And he wasn't necessarily a bad guy. You know, he just saw Elliot as a way to get his slice of the American dream and isn't really thinking about what does the animal want because it's a fucking animal. Um, and so you can see where he's coming from. And then even at the end of the movie, it's like, you know, tries to save his brother. And, you know, it isn't like he's like, screw you and everything, even though their relationship is sort of acrimonious throughout the movie. Um 
I, and that's the other thing is that if they were going to go that route. I wish they had spent a little bit more time establishing where, because, because I mean, like I said, I, it was Friday night. I had just got out of work. And so the first 20 minutes were half an hour of the movie. Um, I, I was like tuning out at certain points. And I remember at one point they were discussing the lumber mill and, and the impression you get is, you know, Carl Urban's character like wants part of the lumber mill or wants to, you know, do something with it. And it's, and it just goes by very quickly. That's why I can't remember the details. It just goes by very quickly. They don't do enough with it. And then by that point, he's already just chasing the stupid dragon down, um, you know, replacing whatever it was he wanted to do with the lumber mill. And I guess, you know, this isn't, this isn't totally about, about that. I wish they would have done more with it. I also wish, since the movie does take place in the Pacific Northwest and it does concern uh, the lumber mills and cutting down trees and whatnot, maybe something a little bit more about that to, to beef this up a bit. Uh, but instead, they focus very much just on the characters, which is fine. But it's also what made it a very kind of simple, very basic story. Uh, Jeff Harris, in his review, mentioned that this is a kid's movie, not just in the sense that it is meant for children, but the writing is very child-centric. It focuses on the kids. It is their movie. Anytime they have to deal with the adults, the writing is distinctly less uh, of a lower quality. And yeah, yeah. I'm with you it's on up. Carl Urban. Uh, the poor guy deserves better. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, you either make the guy as sympathetic and just kind of misunderstood, which is fine if you're going to go that route. Let's give a little more context to it, though. And I think you can do that without dragging this thing out another 20 minutes. I mean, you could have easily cut some of the first act of this movie, added a scene where he and his brother argue over, uh, you know, who owns what percentage of the lumber mill, the financials of it. You know, we don't need, again, we, we don't need, you know, 20 minutes of character exposition. You can do little things to show degrees of the relationship, to let the scene breathe a little bit and let us, you know, understand his position, or you just make him wholly unsympathetic and go that route. And really either one is fine. Uh, they just wound up kind of straddling that line a little bit too much of, you know, not quite sure whether he's yeah. supposed to be a bad guy or just misunderstood. Yeah. It seems like they're like, well, we need, we need conflict in this movie. So we'll make him kind of a jerk and then didn't really develop it any further. Yeah, I mean, they would have been better off creating a different character that was in... I mean, my other gripe with this movie is the whole thing takes place within, what, 48 hours? Yeah. Except for the five years that he was in the woods. You know what I mean. The The bulk of this movie takes place within a 48-hour stretch. You know, I mean, you could have easily gone with, instead of Carl Urban's character, I mean, you could just write him out entirely, and substitute a overly litigious uh, you know, environmentalist who just wants to prove that these things exist, wants that particular bit of fame, and is just kind of making life extraordinarily difficult for the people who are just trying to eke out a living in small-town Pacific Northwest in the early 80s. And then you have a much 
uh, a character that is much easier to dislike because no one likes environmentalists. And <laughs> and if you don't want to actually kill him in the end because it's a kids movie, it would be very easy for him to have a redeeming moment wherein he is struck by the beauty of what's going on around him and decides that no, I I should really just kind of let this thing back into the wild where it belongs. Can I also make a plea for this? Make a plea for silliness. I think this movie could have used a dose of silly. Um, and I'll the tell dragon chasing its tail uh, wasn't I, silly enough for you. No, I wanted Elliot to go on a rampage throughout the city. I wanted. I wished that if the chase had gone in the other direction, where they block it from going into the. Now I'm probably the only person reviewing this movie who, who who's thinking that Pete's Dragon should have taken a sharp turn into Godzilla territory. You but, are because um, I think a lot. Because I'm sure a lot of the reviews were like, in a summer full of overstuffed garbage, it was nice to get a simple character story with it, you know, with an animated uh, character. And they're not wrong, but. I still would have enjoyed a bigger ending than what we You got. didn't you get your big explosion and you're unhappy about it. I understand. I quit talking at me like I'm a child. I'm saying that was a choice they could have made. But if Roman people to the theater. I'm not if, sure that's if, true. If, they, if there's the promise that Elliot's going to lose his fucking mind and just start torching the city you know, wrecking buildings and whatnot, I guarantee you people would have, people would have been like, oh, I want to go see the movie where the dragon takes out, all, you know, where the dragon takes out Washington State. Uh, if you want to set that up a little bit better, uh, one of my gripes with this movie, and again, this is a minor writing issue, much like, you know, Carl Urban being kind of neither here nor there. There's supposed to be a bit of a sub-theme to this movie, I think, that involves the dragon not being where he... uh, There's a bit... Again, none of this is subtle, mind you. But there's a line repeated, you know, throughout the dialogue about being where you are supposed to be. And it's... I think they could have done a better job of making it clear that, no, this dragon does not belong here. He's wreaking havoc on the ecosystem. He's, you know, just not where he's supposed to be. And part of what, uh, and really, I mean, as soon as he and Elliot took off together, uh, first of all, okay, let me go with what I think they could have done, what I thought was going to happen, then how they could have, you know, potentially improved things like that. I thought that uh, they were just going to take off and Elliot or Pete was going to take him all the way back to be with his family. Uh, Then I thought that would be their farewell instead of the way they went with it. Which both sides have pros and cons, but if you want to set up a you know a big explosion fest, if Michael Bay gets to direct 15 minutes of this movie, <laughs> uh, then I think no, no woohoo's. Do not woohoo at me about that. <laughs> not not woohoo worthy. But if you choose a blindfolded chimpanzee to direct 15 minutes of this movie and fill it with explosions, because they're just as competent as Michael Bay is, then I think what you set up earlier is Elliot missing his family, missing his place in the world. And then at the end, when they're trying to kind of parade the, the dragon around, uh, his family arrives, and they're the ones who burn the town to the ground, kill half the population, 
preferably violently, take their son out and mention and kind of warn everyone else tacitly. By the way, mention this to anyone, and uh, there's more of us. And then the kids wind up in therapy for the next 40 years. Uh, and then on the streets, <laughs> raving about dragons. I'm not saying I don't like your idea. I'm just needs a tweak. It needs a, I like the idea of Elliot maybe bellowing and, you know, doing a special dragon call. You know, and its family come, you know, is, is awakened out of the out of the mountain, and the dragon comes storming in, and it go, and you know, and it all comes to a, it all comes to a, to a point where one of the one of the dragons is going after Pete, and Pete yells out, "Elliot, save me!" And Elliot like jumps in between him and the other dragon, and goes, "No, no, 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 not not this one," you know, and they're like, "We've done enough damage. Let's get out of here." And then the dragons take off. Uh, if they'd established that the dragons could talk earlier in the movie, I would find that acceptable. Well, they speak in, uh, they, like Wookiee. They speak to each other. No, no, they no, no, no. We're it. not, we're not, we're not giving them Draconic and then having to subtitle it. This is a kid's movie. <laughs> okay. I like, I like the, uh, and dragons have to somehow communicate with each other now. I mean, they're not, they're, they're, Clearly, These are more dogs than dragons. They communicate like dogs would. Uh, every movie I've ever seen says dogs speak English. They just speak it to each other. Do bark. Uh. <laughs> you know, normally I would ignore that and move on. But there's a part of me that goes, you know, he's probably telling the truth. <laughs> All the things I've ever said that might have upset you the most. <laughs> it just depresses me on such a profound level. <laughs> what what doesn't depress you, sir? All right. Yeah, several I think, things. I think we have uh, beaten the subject sufficiently to death. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna uh, take your kid to see this, just be aware the first th- the first third of the movie is pretty slow. You're gonna have to you might have to work to keep their attention. Uh, beyond that, it's fine. I mean, I, I, again, there's, there's a few points that I think could have been better, could have been improved upon, but I don't believe they were, you know, massive errors necessarily. No, this is, you know, look, in an acrimonious summer as this one was, so many flops and so many badly put together films, this one, this one at least works all the way through. It wasn't poorly written. It, it's just fine, you know. If you're a big softy like me, you know you might be you might have had more enjoyment out of it than, than maybe Winfrey did. But overall, at least structurally, it was sound. This was competent movie making. If you're an aspiring screenwriter, this should be the baseline of quality for material you submit anywhere. It's not great. It, by no means is this a great movie or is this a greatly written movie. But the, everything you submit as a screenwriter should be this good or preferably better. If, you, if, you're, if your writing is worse than this, see Ghostbusters or Suicide Squad, go back. You had a good first draft. Let's, try to, let's, let's see if we can't do better the second time around. <laughs> All right. Uh, and with that, here come the money. Here comes the money. 
Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. All right, this thing made uh, was made on a $65 million budget in today's uh, bloated summer blockbuster production budgets. Uh, this thing was made for a song, $65 million, Jesus Christ. Um, still uh, only only halfway there, um, and it needs to make $130 million for, uh, for it to start making some decent money for it to have been worth, worth the remake. But... Um, it had some competition this weekend. Apparently, Sausage Party is doing quite well. well be- better than I thought it was going to do. I thought this thing was going to die at the box office. This is probably one of the... I, I would say of all the weekends that I that I did some math and figured out which one was going to win and which one's going to... I think I've only been wrong twice, and this is the second time. First of all, I really thought Ghostbusters would win this weekend. Um, it didn't. It, it failed. miserably. <laughs> It got beaten, you know, by a movie that was already out for a week. In, um, in its third week. The Secret Life of Pets. It was the second week. Oh, whatever. Um, in any case, Pete's Dragon kind of had an uphill slog. It would say Sausage Party, which uh, did well. And then it, and then even though it was a steep drop, there's a, big, still making money. there's a big contingent of the population that thinks Seth Rogen is funny. I'm not sure what. <laughs> power plant these people were raised next to, but they exist. So with that being said, um, and the next week it doesn't get any better for Peach Dragon, in the, you know, in the sense that you've got War Dogs, which is which will be out for you know those adults who are interested in you know going to the movies, they are more likely going to see War Dogs than than um, Peach Dragon. As for the kids. You know, even my daughter would have rather gone if I had it. If, if given a choice between Kubo and the Two Strings and Peach Dragon, she would have preferred to see Kubo and the Two Strings. Hey, Mark. She's not going to. Don't ask me that same question. Because <laughs> you're not my daughter. No, no, no. Seriously, ask me that same question, Robert. Which of these two movies would you rather have reviewed? They don't come out in the same week, so it's an irrelevant question. I'm aware of that, but that's not the point. The point is. Even I, who, you know, admittedly not the target audience for either movie, is by orders of magnitude more interested in Kubo and the Two Strings than I was in this. Yeah, well, you'll see Kubo and, Kubo and the Two Strings. I'm already going to see War Dogs. Got my tickets already, and my daughter's not going to see Kubo and the Two Strings until. Mark, do you want to die? Are you threatening me, sir? No, no, no. Legitimate question. You're feeling suicidal at the moment because I have a way for you to end your own life as it pertains to the movie you're going to see. War Dogs? Yeah. I don't like where this is going at all. Go ahead. Take a shot every time one of them says bro. (laughs) Just the trailer (laughs) would get you blackout drunk. I imagine the movie will have you succumbing to alcohol poisoning. Well, since we're going to the Cinebistro where they freely serve alcohol, I'll have to give that a shot. Um, <laughs> shot, get it? Anywho, $65 million budget. Alternatively, every uh, time Jonah Hill's neck fat bulges on screen. Can we focus on the actual movie we're reviewing, please? Um, it's made almost $30 million thus far, but the, the whole point of this whole conversation was if it gets to sixty, if if it gets to sixty-five million, you know, maybe even one hundred and twenty million, 
great. Uh, Disney's not tremendously happy. This was not a swing and a miss so much as it is, you know, a foul ball. Um, maybe they can recover and get the, you know, and get a single out of it, but it's not looking good. It's been the only misstep they've really had. Um, that's strictly Disney. The big misstep they've had this year was the BFG. Steven Spielberg can't seem to get a movie out that anyone wants to go see if his life fucking depended on it. Um, so yeah, the BFG was a huge, huge flop. We'll talk about that next week, along with some of the other flops this summer. Uh, and there were a lot of them. Uh, but besides that, um, here's where we stand. Uh, Su- Suicide Squad. Oh, hang on. Let me um, pull my weekend stats here. So who won the weekend? Suicide Squad won the weekend, uh, August 12th through August 14th. Number one, two weeks in a row now, made uh, $43 million, I believe. Oh, all uh, oh, that hurts. Weekend. That is all oh, that's painful. That's, and I, I mean, for the studio, that's an over 50% drop. Oh, yeah. You've not seen the... Um, that yeah, thing hang fell on. off So despite Suicide Squad's large to-be-expected second week weekend drop, the film pulled in more than enough to hold off newcomers for a second weekend at the number one box office. It now totals more than $465 million worldwide. But yeah, it's like a fucking 67.3% drop. No, uh, man, that, I mean, you and I talked about, I mean, anything with a big opening is going to have a hefty drop, but man, that's, oh, I mean, that thing's, you said 400 some odd million, 80% of that came from its opening weekend. Oh, yeah, that, is, yeah. that is not good. That is a poor indicator for that movie. I mean, they've made enough money to probably get a sequel going and Warner Brothers is, irrationally stubborn about this particular bunch of crap they're spewing out right now, but that is not good from an analytical perspective. That is downright terrible. Um, so anyway, so Suicide Squad still at 471 million. It's made its money. I mean, if you're talking strictly, did it, did this thing, uh, make its budget? Yeah, it, it did. We're, we're, we're good. <laughs> we're doing fine. Um, you know, could is this going to be? Is this going to get to a billion dollars? No, this may not even get to Batman v Superman levels. It's had a steeper drop and it had a worse score uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, and honestly, at this but, point, uh, if, they, if they're able to crack five hundred and fifty million, they ought to be jumping up and down. So, Sausage Party debuted at number two. Peace Dragon debuted at number three. Um, Jason Bourne dropped from two to four. Bad Moms dropped from three to five. The Secret Life of Pets dropped from four to six. Star Trek Beyond, another struggling movie, dropped from five to seven. Um, Florence Foster Jenkins debuted at number eight. Nine Lives, which had a zero, I think, at one point on Rotten Tomatoes, dropped from six to nine. And Lights Out, punch, punch, punch your lights out, lights out, seven to ten. And I believe in this instance, Lights it. Out is a horror movie, not uh, affiliated with the particular song you referenced. Poke your lights out. Lights out. Uh, Ghostbusters dropped from number nine to number 12. <laughs> uh, 
Let's see. How is Ghostbusters doing these days? How are you, my little Badly. Ghostbusters? You're, you're almost at $200 million. Hooray <laughs> for you. <laughs> Not even Not quite million, huh? Oh, yeah. You, you, man, you said it was going to be a billion-dollar movie and be one of the top two grossing at the end of the year. You thought children and women would flock to this thing and... <laughs> Sorry, you men, you men in it killed this movie. The Stupid internet men. did not kill that movie. It being a bad movie killed that movie. Yeah, it's well, not being not not not. The internet didn't China, screw didn't Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters screwed Ghostbusters. Thank you, Vince. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> just as a side, if you look, like you know, its domestic cum is at uh, one twenty-one. Its foreign is only seventy-one million. You know, like nobody around the world saw this thing. Well, it's a very American movie, and in this instance, that's not a compliment. One of the uh, I watched a bunch of documentaries on YouTube today. Um, Midnight Edge, I think it's called, uh, seems to do these non uh, non subjective, completely objective documentaries about you know why these films are bombing, and you know the, the, the truth behind. Like they did one about Sp- the Spider Man franchise, and they did a bunch of ones about Ghostbusters. And one of the things they said was that Ghostbusters seems to be a uniquely American, uh, a uniquely American appreciated franchise that around the world, it doesn't carry much cachet. And that might be because it's a fucking 30 year old movie. <laughs> you know, and just, and they haven't really marketed the toys outside of the United States. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't work at Sony. I don't know who's been in charge of this franchise for the last 30 years and what they've done to get people overseas to buy the toys. You know, because I mean, Batman and Superman never go out of style. They're always rehashing Batman. Well, no, okay. What? In general, they don't go out. I, I was about to contest your point about Batman never going out of style because I don't know about you, but I did see bat nipples in theater. And that killed the franchise for a while, but it had other avenues that were still financially no, viable for. Yeah, yeah no, 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 I, I understand. I understand your point. You know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can sell those to kids far, you know, around the world. Batman and Superman. You sell Mickey Mouse. You sell all that to kids all around the world. Kids will buy them. Um, Legos. You know, Legos sell worldwide. Uh, so that's that's the thing. Like. If you're talking about trying to keep a franchise alive, you know, we, we talked about this a week or two ago, you have to have audience buy-in of some kind. You have to have a product out there to keep, the, to keep it relevant. Either you need to make a movie every couple of years or you need to have something else out there, a television show, a toy line, a, you know, a, a, a cartoon, something for people to, for you to remind people this thing exists and to be interested in it so that when you decide you're going to do a major motion picture, you have an audience to tap into. That's the biggest problem with Ghostbusters was, um, going back to my initial point, they, I don't know how much is done to keep this brand relative, relevant to people outside of the United States. And it's showing. So yeah, no, I mean, look, the fact that, that even the original Ghostbusters, and this is, a very interesting point, but comedies like that, that are very, and the original Ghostbusters is a very 
dialogue-driven style of humor. There, there are certainly visual pratfalls here and there. There is visual comedy, but the biggest laughs come from delivery, come from the dialogue. I mean, again, dropping off or picking up is a pretty iconic line from that. And when you have to either get those things dubbed over with voice actors or just subtitled, a lot of that appeal just kind of dies on the vine. No, I com- I completely agree with you. Um, it, it's it's a it's a, you're right. It's a very performance driven thing, and it doesn't translate a lot of times. You know, especially a lot of the stuff that uh, I mean. First of all, with Ghostbusters, you had a lot of gobbledygook talk. You know, the, the, a lot of you know science fiction type stuff. Then you have you know what's Bill Murray's entire performance, which would be hard to recapture as a voiceover artist in a foreign country. So, um, you know, but getting back to Pete's dragon and then how the rest of the, uh, how the rest of the weekend went, um, that's where we stand. Uh, yearly, uh, number one movie still in the United States is finding Dory. Um, and that's what it's still a civil war. Yeah. Worldwide it's still civil war. Yeah, Finding Dory is the number one movie in America, followed by Captain America, Deadpool, Jungle Book, Zootopia, Pets. But okay, so six movies. Okay, I just want I just want to point this out. Six movies. The top six movies in America are either animated movies, movies <laughs> movies about animals, or comic books. <laughs> and out of those six movies, four of them are Disney. Um, and rounding out the top ten. You've got Batman v Superman, comic book. Suicide, comic book. X-Men, comic book. And Kung Fu Panda, animated sequel. Um, About animals. Ghostbusters. <laughs> and Ghostbusters is uh, sitting there, sitting pretty at 15. No one cares about Ghostbusters. Um, Pete's Dragon currently sitting at 58, between The Witch and Whiskey Tango Foxtrot. Ugh, that's not a good movie to be next to. Uh, uh, yeah, whiskey. No, no, whiskey tango foxtrot was terrible. The witch was at least a smaller production film, and a very good one, by the way. I'm going to talk about that either next week on our wrap up or our year end show, depending on if we want to draw a, chron- a chronological line. But uh, yeah, um, that that is poor financial company to be keeping. Worldwide civil war, man. No, no one's topped it yet. Not even Zootopia, who also made a billion dollars. Jungle Book has run out of steam at $947 million. Finding Dory continues to climb, however. It's, it knocked Deadpool and Batman v Superman uh, out of their spots. It is the number four movie in the world right now. It's sitting at $900 million It's a better movie than I have those. Um, so that knocked Batman v Superman, which ran out of steam at $872 million, which is a disappointment, a big disappointment for DC. And uh, Deadpool's at number six. Pets is still climbing the rankings here at almost $600 million. So Universal, which is their only contribution to the top ten this year uh, so far, um, is uh, loving that. They're making, that, uh, that studio is, is making tons of money for them. Those are, of course, the people that brought us Minions. Um, we've got The Mermaid, who no one's been able to knock that out of the top ten. And, again, it's Sony's only winner this year. 
Uh, we have and it, it bears noting that Sony uh, Searchlight Pictures, if memory serves, or Sony International, that is their international film studio, because The Mermaid was a uh, Chinese the movie. Was a- yes. Um, worldwide, Suicide Squad is at 11, and Warcraft is at 12. Warcraft, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, it made more than its $32 million that it was $320 million that it was supposed to. Uh, on the other hand, it was, it took so long to get this thing out and it only made money overseas. It's, it's the most mixed bag movie <laughs> going right now. So it'll be a, it'll be a sequel, but don't be surprised if it's all in Mandarin fucking Chinese. Well, and, that uh, and that, of course, uh, is the other interesting thing about the Warcraft movie that when it got brought up, that I mean, you and I talked about it after it was still making money or it had doubled its production budget, it was doing okay, and then studio people or people involved with the movie were coming out saying, no, it's still a pretty hefty loss. I mean, that's, you know, well, why is that? Well, in this case, I imagine the, the uh, profits had to be split amongst two or three different parties as opposed to the in addition to the normal uh, split, and that's uh, eating into the potential, eating into the ability to reach profitability as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that wraps it up for the money for me. How oh, does it now? <laughs> it does. Oh no, God! No, God, please, no, 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 no. All right, Rotten Tomatoes, here we go. Peach Dragon on the tomato meter, 86%. Um, And the audience score was 82. So critics and people alike all found uh, Peach Dragon to be pretty good. No major complaints here. Uh, War Dogs, by the way, finally got a Rotten Tomato score at 69%, so at least it's fresh. Ben-Hur still not scored. No one's going to see that movie. Nobody. No one. <laughs> not even us. And we've seen every piece of shit this summer. We have not no seen one's every piece of crap this summer. We've seen most of them. Every piece of crap. Um, all right. So here we go with the Rotten Tomato ones. Oh, we'll start. With, we'll start. Amy Nicholson, you are you. You and Robert Winfrey on a date. You are both ants at a picnic. My goodness. Amy Nicholson of MTV and Movie Fight fame. Picture the exec who said that scales might be too strange, as though asking kids to dream wasn't the point. <laughs> I appreciate that bit. Of, I, I, you should be proud of that sentence. That's uh, <laughs> that's amusing at the very that's least. Um, I understand why they went with I her. They want this creature not to be a traditional dragon, which is not cuddly enough to be turned into a plushie that they can sell in Disneyland. Or World or the Disney Store. More. More to, the, more to the point, the Disney store. Wherever they sell their stuff. They sell it everywhere. It's a worldwide brand. I'm aware of that. Trust me, the, the evil empire that is Disney is has not escaped my notice. Senadio Brennan, can, can you squeal like Senadio Connor? Uh, Sinead Brennan of RTE Ireland says... 
Great kids' films will always have something there for the adults, but there is no appeal here. Children may get lost in a sense of wonder at the incredibly cute Elliot, but there are better films out there that would be worth picking up instead. That's about right. That's about right. Matthew Lacona of San Diego Reader, top critic, says, After an opening that briefly borders on shocking, David Lowry's remake of the 1977 film keeps its enormous pause safely on the beaten path. I'm not entirely sure the opening is even shocking. Have you all, reviewers out there, if you're under the age of 20, I will accept the fact that what I'm about to say might not make sense to you. But to anyone over the age of 25, and if you're like Mark and I and have been around for, you know, several decades, you're aware of this fact. If you're in a Disney movie, the worst thing you can do for your personal longevity is have kids. The parents always die. You didn't see the original, right? You, I mean, no. I think I sang Pastor McQuaddy at you last week, and you didn't know what the fuck I was talking about. So I haven't opening, seen it, but I did read a synopsis in preparation for this. So uh, him being abused by backwoods hillbillies and then having to run and escape them is not at all out of character for Disney movies. Well, what I was going to say was, and um, everything wrong with actually picked up on this rather amusingly, uh, you know, here the father makes a choice. It's a choice that ends poorly, obviously, and it puts the child in danger. But the child is in danger for moments, and then it's protected by a giant dragon. The Pete in the 1977 musical is abused on an ongoing basis. There's a point where he's talking to, uh, oh gosh, what is her name in the movie? Well, she, they're talking to the to to the to the main female character and he's, you know, and she's asking him, you know, like at one point, like she, she tries to like, like offer him clothes and he, you know, and he flinches clearly showing he's been, he's been beaten or molested in some way. Um, you know, kid get a pretty good job of portraying that. But there's a, there's a point where she's talking to him. She's like, Oh, did they ever hit you? And he's like, you know, one time I was milking the cow and I missed the bucket and, you know, Mr. Gogan punched me in the face or some shit like that. Like, my God, I'll take the Pete in this movie in, in as far as non-shocking things happening to him versus what happens to poor Pete in, 19, in the 1977 version. You know, well, to be fair, kids in 1977 got punched regularly. <laughs> no, it's actually the early 1900s. It's even worse. Oh. Well, geez, he gratefully lived and, to that age and didn't die of cholera. What's this ungrateful kid talking about? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, there's a part where um, Kaniki from uh, from Greece and another actor who didn't go on to do anything of note are talking about like wanting the time to train tracks. <laughs> like, you know what? A brief shot of a car accident, much better. Christopher Lawrence of the Las Vegas Review Journal: Pete's Dragon is genial and family friendly, but there's entirely too much setup, precious little action, not. An- not much magic, and even in 103 minutes, feels at least 20 minutes too long. Well, here we have somebody who goes to the who goes to the Mark Rado School of Filmmaking, show a rampaging dragon at the end of it. Yeah, uh, people of that particular philosophy, uh, 
we have too many of you already. Kindly pick a new one and do the world a favor. Not you, Mark, because if you ever wound up agreeing with me on a regular basis on this show, I'm not sure what would happen. <laughs> but for this gentleman, I will ag- – I know. I apologize for liking monster movies. No, you don't have to, and that's absolutely fine. You shouldn't have to apologize for what you like. Same way I'm not going to apologize for hating it if I think it's stupid. And this is how the world improves, folks. Mark and I agree to disagree, and we can just shake hands at the end of it and go, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, Will Leach of the New Republic, top critic. The movie feels like a rock coated in cotton candy, a shiny object that simulates human-type emotions but never truly earns them. Oh, I don't think that's true. That's a little harsh. I mean, I didn't emote a whole lot watching this movie, but there is clearly attempts at emotion being done on screen, and not even in the cheap, you know, just everyone cries at X. Everyone cries when the mom dies. Well, sure. That doesn't mean you've achieved a degree of actual emotional clarity. And this movie is not like that. They don't even dwell on the fact that this poor kid just lost both his parents in a car crash in the middle of nowhere. That would have been cheap emotional manipulation. Sure, this isn't profound writing, but it to say that it just absolutely doesn't earn any kind of emotional response is somewhat unfair. Matthew DeKinder of the Suburban Journals of St. Louis. The original Pete's Dragon wasn't much more than goofy flight of fancy. The remake, while well-made and well-acted, feels lifeless and uninspired. I would actually reverse this gentleman's point. point. (laughs) It's not especially well-acted. It is competently acted, but I I wouldn't say well. Nothing about it is memorable. But the the reverse is more accurate as well. Uh, in terms of its you know, overall feel, they do a passable job of trying to create a world wherein a dragon has simply gone undetected lurking in the Pacific Northwest. Jason Zingale of Bullseye.com says, while Lowry's soulful, more character-driven adaptation is a refreshing change of pace from the, from the typical summer film, boy, is it ever, it never really goes anywhere. No, there's a third line straight for pretty – as a matter of fact, it's a very simple line. I'm not entirely sure how you get it goes nowhere. Uh, if by goes nowhere you mean treads the very well-established path for a children's movie, then sure, but you're fundamentally misusing several of the words in the English language. <laughs> Sarah Boslov, Black of oh, Playback, St. Uh, STL. <clears throat> St. Louis is that what that's an abbreviation for? A hopeless mishmash. Mm. Oh, shut up! Wait, I'm not done yet. A hopeless mishmash, among other things, the Jungle Book, Tarzan, ET, and King Kong. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I wanted to go into the number of ways that's wrong. <laughs> If you just read a plot synopsis and decided you were going to claim this movie was a mashup, then sure. But by the point you've re- – if you've gotten to the point where you're claiming movie X is a mashup of at least four other movies, 
you're treading into the territory where that is not a valid point, and instead you're just reaching trying to justify your criticism. Uh, Neil Smith of Total Film, rather more plotting than a story involving an invisible fire-breathing wyvern really should be all things considered. Fair point. Fair point. (laughs) Marshall Fine of Hollywood and Fine, just because you can remake a piece of crap like this does not mean that it's a good idea. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, the original Peep's Dragon is not good, necessarily. Shut up. Necessarily, I'm not deny. I'm not denouncing it outright. I'm just saying there's a reason it's not held within the esteem of the other Disney movies from that era. It is by me. Yeah, now you're turning into the majority of one. <laughs> I love Peach Dragon. You you missed my whole open about that. And I've heard you talk about it in the past. I can sing all the songs. I love that movie. I cry at the end. Oh, it's oh when Nora and her husband get or her boyfriend or whatever get reunited after he comes back from being overseas. It's Elliot. Oh, I love that movie. Okay. Mark being the statistical outlier aside. Disney's remaking a bunch of their old properties, and here's the thing about this movie that I think we need to touch on briefly. This is not going to do as well financially or critically as, say, Cinderella did, or oh, what's the other one that we talked that we reviewed? Because there's one more of them that's in that same vein. That I know we've reviewed on this show in the past. Might be, I might be thinking about Maleficent. I might be thinking right. about I'll, Maleficent. I'll have to think about it. Think about it. Well, the point. Book, Jungle Book. Okay, that's the other one that was off. That's the one I was trying to remember. Thank you. In this instance, in this instance, we've got another film that is a remake of a Disney classic that is beloved, by, is beloved by a fraction of a percentage of the population. But they still do a fundamentally good job with the movie. It's not great, but it's, it's not, not bad. Great, but it's not bad. Well, can we talk about that for a second? Not every remake is equal in terms of having an audience ready for it. We just discussed this, literally. Yeah, no, no, I, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. You know, so, so when you take, look, Beauty and the Beast next year is going to be a fucking monster, and it'll probably make a billion dollars. Why? No, no, because don't Belle say it. Don't it. Be- no, no, no. Now I'm being completely serious. Belle hasn't gone anywhere. Belle is still a beloved character. The, the, the Beauty and the Beast came out in, what, the 90s? 1992 or three, lost the best picture Oscar okay. that year to uh, Silence of the Lambs. And it was a monster when it was an animated picture, and it hasn't lost steam since. There are still if you go to the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique right now, in any on a Disney cruise, or at um, or at uh, Downtown Disney, who it's not goes by a different name, I don't remember it, or obviously Disney World or Disneyland, you will see girls lined up, many of them dressed like Belle. Many of them getting their makeover as Belle. 
These attractions that are Beauty and the Beast related are still popular. My God, they just opened a four-star restaurant in the middle of Disney World called Be Our Guest. And people this still sing the song. People still sing the song. Yeah. This is a movie that you remake. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. There's one thing. I have one completely nonsensical request from the from the Beauty and the Beast remake. Okay. The Rock wants to be Gaston, and I say let him do it. They've already shot the movie. Ah, uh, I know, I know, but The Rock's got a, apparently got a soft spot for that character, and I just, man, they, I don't know how you would explain a half black, half Polynesian man in, you know, provincial France during the Middle Ages, but I don't care. And another version of Beauty and the Beast, sure. I can totally see The Rock as Gaston. The Rock is Gaston. Who are we kidding? Um, <laughs> I know, right? It's too perfect. Yeah. In any case, um, so you remake any of the princess movies have a built-in audience. I could have said well, the I same mean, thing. Well, I mean, look at how Maleficent and Cinderella did. I mean, those were well, and those quantifiable. Well, hang on. Maleficent was garbage. Maleficent was mostly garbage, but it but it, it had the Aurora audience. It had the Sleeping Beauty audience. Cinderella and was great. And it had Angelina Jolie appropriately chewing scenery as Maleficent. So issues of quality yeah. aside, it made money. Right. Um, you know, you have Cinderella, the most popular Disney princess going, pretty much. Um, you know, it had a built-in audience. However, if you would mean remake like Bed Knobs and Broomsticks or the Apple Dumpling Gang, I mean, you're only going to get maybe a fraction of an audience. And that's the problem with Pete's Dragon. Name something that has happened since 1977 that would have made Pete's Dragon relevant to anyone living right now. Oh, not a darn thing. <laughs> People in 1977 didn't care much for it. Yeah, and like it didn't do well back then either. <laughs> so it's just like, and so the guy that said just because you can make something doesn't mean you should, I, I get his point. But I still think, you know, there's an opportunity there to, that's why I'm glad they only did, they only spent $65 million on this thing. And I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of it went to fucking animating the dragon. Um, because you're not going to make a tremendous amount of money on this thing. You might have it yeah, if the dragon actually torched the village at the end of the movie, but no, you know, no, otherwise, no, that would not have helped, Mark. Don't, don't, don't try to do that. Would not have helped. But the point being is, it's not like there's been a, you know, the, even the Jungle Book had a cartoon that was on Disney Junior for a while, um, and you know, I, I think. I think the, the cartoon has sold well over the years. When was the last time you saw Pete's Dragon on Blu-ray or DVD in some sort of, you know, because that's the other thing. Like, even if they don't have a cartoon series or something relevant that comes out to sort of to generate interest in, in, um, in an IP, um, occasionally Disney re-releases stuff on Blu-ray or DVD or whatever. And it's like a diamond edition or a golden edition or a fuck your mom edition or whatever edition. And, you know, and people go out and, you know, and all of a sudden there's this interest in the project again. You know, the Jungle Book has gone through this. Many of the animated ones have gone through this. Again, when was the last time did they did anything with Peach Dragon? I was like, like, to the studios out there, once again, if you're going to remake something that's 30 years old, dust it off well before you go into, produ- into production 
go have like a phantom, you know, a, a phantom uh, phantom showing or <laughs> some sort. Get people interested in the project before you make it. Before before any principal photography shoots, before you've started to gather money for it. If all you have is an idea on paper that we want to remake this movie, for God's sake, start creating interest now. And when you've got it going, and when people are talking about it on Twitter, when you know, uh, when you can show statistically, people are are renting digitally the movie through iTunes or uh, you know Frontier or Cox or Warner Brothers or whatever, uh, rather uh, Time Warner, and say, okay, there's there's interest in this thing. Is Disney going, going back, back to Netflix? I, I seem to recall hearing that somewhere that Disney was going to. Yeah, they are uh, net, yeah, yeah. So. I, Hey, there's there's data you can gather from that website. Right. Go ahead and do that. Then go into production with some of these movies. They're doing things ass backwards now, and they're losing money because of it. All right. Well, uh, let's let's do a couple more. We'll, we'll... Briefly to that point, I wanted to mention this. If nothing else, Disney can use this as goodwill building because they took a lesser known property remade it live action and did it well. So there's, they're still building a very good track record with this movement they have going on in addition to you know, the quality of the film itself. So there, there's still some good that can come out of that. I also want to say this. I really, it, you know, every now and then Mark and I joke about if we could be a fly on the wall for, you know, executive meetings. When Disney decided to start doing live-action remakes of their animated classics, and there's a few you know, big ones coming out. He mentioned uh, you know, Beauty and the Beast. They're talking about doing Aladdin, I think, for the year after that. Live-action Dumbo. Yeah, although I, I will say this. The, uh, an Aladdin movie without Robin Williams is the genie. Just I'm not sure how to feel about it. <laughs> But I wanted, if I could be a fly on the wall for any of those meetings, I would love to have been there when somebody said, hey, we can do a live action remake of The Lion King. And some poor production assistant who was just standing in the corner went, that's just Hamlet. And everybody just slowly did the slow turn to stare daggers at this poor guy for just pointing out the obvious. <laughs> Hey, you. Who left you in this room? Uh, okay. Anyway, on with these terrible reviews. All right. Um, uh, 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 Michael O'Sullivan of the Washington Post, top critic. While Peace Dragon does a fine job of evoking the delight one might feel at flying over hill and dale on the back of a mythological creature, it is less successful in rendering real human emotion. What robots went to go see this movie? I'd argue he's kind of got a point. The human, and to the point of the writing, the humans in this movie are not terribly interesting. I mean, you got the dead-eyed kid, the adults are given short shrift, and, I mean, the vast majority of emoting on screen comes from the puppy dragon. Uh, last one, Robert Horton of Herald.net, uh, an offbeat underwhelmer with moments of quiet charm. Hmm. See, it's so, it's, this is such a traditional movie in terms of structure. I'm not sure you can call it offbeat. Uh, 
Eh, the other so two I only read the, are somewhat valid, though. I only read the negative ones, and as I read the fresh ones, these these might even be more infuriating. Oh, please. Let's have a go. Jamie East of The Sun UK. This is old school Disney using 2016 magic. Five out of five. <laughs> you are fundamentally wrong. Consider how Disney evoked magic back when they were making movies like this and consider what they're doing now and observe the vast gulf that is the ability to emotionally connect with an audience in this movie at least um john winkler of the young folks pete's dragon is so preserved in its own universe and separate from the commercialism of modern kids movies that it's actually quite refreshing I will agree to the extent that apart from Elliot, they are not trying to merchandise and sell every single element of this thing. Yeah, but I think that's what cost them money at the box office. They should have been fucking dragging. It did. I mean, I appreciate, you know, a a mild bit of anti-commercialism, but at the same time, you're in a commercial business. (laughs) Last one. Mike Ryan of Uprock. Pete's Dragon is better is a better Super 8. No. I'm just going with a hard no on this one. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're an infant, maybe. But no, Super 8 was a much... No, no. I mean, you might as well... No, you're just wrong. Like, I'm not entirely sure how many different ways I can qualify how fundamentally wrong you are. This is more accessible to the five-year-old crowds because it's not scary in places, but... And okay, if you're turned off by lens flare, fine. It's an Abrams movie. You've all been warned. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's get into plugs here. So we're we're doing these Tuesdays for the near future because... uh, Robert Cooper had yet another schedule change, so we moved Metal Hammer of Doom to Wednesdays. Um, and Cheap Seats is back. That'll be on Thursdays or wherever we're not already doing a show. So tomorrow, Metal Hammer of Doom, it'll just be me and Jesse uh, because Robert Cooper has to work. I don't know how that happens, but it did. Uh, and we'll be reviewing the latest Jackal album, Jackal with a Y. Uh, I feel so bad for you. Entitled Rock Out With Your Cock Out. It's the best album of the year. It's fantastic. Like I said, Deep Seats is Thursday. Uh, next week, um, we'll be doing uh, our, our Tuesday show here. Uh, no movie review, but we will be doing a summer movie wrap-up. We'll go, we'll go all the way back to May. We'll talk about Civil War. Um, talk about some of the movies that we might have seen over the summer that we did not review. I will go a little bit more in depth about the killing joke. Um, we'll, uh, we'll, you know, we'll review the money again. So I have a longer discussion about the money. Uh, we'll try not to get, we'll try not to repeat too much of the same shit we've already discussed with, in terms of Ghostbusters and, and Suicide Squad. Cause really what, what more is there to say without repeating ourselves incessantly? But uh, you know, this was a dismal, <laughs> this was a dismal year for summer movies. Um, a lot of swings, a lot of misses. Uh, Consider yeah, that, folks. The man who, st- who, shout- who shouted at me for three hours 
about the quality of Transformers Age of Extinction was nonplussed by the crop of summer films this year. Well, even if I thought every single one of them was a winner, they just didn't make any money. I mean, when you look at uh, two thousand, when you look at two thousand fifteen, you know, I'll bring it up for one second. I mean, we'll talk more in depth about this next week. But when you look at worldwide, where we were by the end of uh, by the end of summer, I mean, just looking at you know, Star Wars was ended up being the number one movie. We'll take that out. This is going out in December of that year. You had Jurassic World, which for the longest time was, was, was the big moneymaker of the summer, but it wasn't alone either. You had three other movies that, right along with it, made a billion dollars. You had uh, Jurassic World, which came out in June. You had Furious 7, which came out in April. You had Avengers, which came out in May. Minions, which came out in July. All those movies made a billion dollars. So by the end of the summer... You, you know, you had four movies over a billion dollars. This year, you've had two, and one of them came out in April. That's not good. Um, when you look at the rest of the summer, outside of Star Wars, Spectre, and The Martian, the three out of ten movies uh, were added to the top ten after the summer had already passed. The rest of them we're smack dab in the middle of uh, something, although I think the Hunger Games may have come out earlier in the, um, maybe November. So four. Hang on, let me double check that. Yeah, Hunger Games was in November, November I think. Okay. We debated reviewing it. That's right. So, okay, four out of ten movies made it, were, were, uh, were in the top ten. Sorry. Four out of ten movies um, were after the summer was over. Six movies from the summer stayed in the top ten. Jurassic World, Furious 7, Avengers, Minions, Inside Out, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. Uh, I mean, it, you just... Meanwhile, you this what year, the, half the field is still chasing Kung Fu Panda 3, which came out in January. Right. I mean, Martian, which was uh, the number ten film, made $630 million dollars because nobody went to go see anything else during the month of October. And God bless them, because there was nothing good to say. But, you know, you had The Martian at 630, Hunger Games um, at 650, Mission Impossible 680, and Inside Out at 850, Spectre at 880, and then everything else is a billion dollars or more. That are your, your top five. Um, now, compare that, now, and we'll compare that to this year, where I'll just kind of give you the basics. Kung Fu Pan is sitting at $519 million. Last year, that wouldn't have made the top 10, obviously. But it's still there. It hasn't been bumped out yet. And these are worldwide. This is with China and all the other, all the other markets involved. Um, you know, right now, the only real competition Civil War has you know, in terms of having their numbers beat is Finding Dory. It's another Disney film. You know, well, not, I think uh, the most realistic uh, the most realistic movie to come out over the course of the year to unseat Civil War is going to be Rogue One, which, with all the reshoots, might also yeah, end up being kind of a dog. That. No, I'm saying right now the the only movie the only oh, yeah. movies that are released right now the only one that has a, a shot at surpassing Civil War is Finding Dory. Everything else is done at the box office, even if it made money. It's still, you know, 
it petered out well before a billion dollars. So I, you know, this is, this has kind of been a shit year for summer movies in terms of quality and box office receipts. So we'll, we'll talk Mark, more about that next. The way you feel right now, I want you to understand the way you feel right now. That's kind of how I feel about every summer season. <laughs> okay. Just, just throwing it out there. Uh, good. <laughs> All right. Uh, as far as plugs, yeah, next week we're going to have some fun and kind of review the summer season. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, this Saturday I am covering UFC 202 in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. I am not terribly enthused about this card, but a lot of people are. So if you are, stop by, say hello. I appreciate it. Uh, this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, provided my internet does not die again, uh, the 411 Ground and Pound radio show will be reviewing UFC 202 and previewing UFC on Fox 20. Because, you see, UFC 202 is kicking off nine consecutive weeks, I believe, of MMA action that I will have to cover, specifically UFC action. If it's not nine at seven, I really have to, I believe it's nine though. I counted it up the other day. So we're going to be, uh, we're going to be having some fun. That'll be interesting. There's a couple of decent events through there. Uh, Condit and Maya ought to be interesting, even though uh, I love Carlos Condit, but come on, man. How are, how are you going to stop Damian Maya? <laughs> Carlos uh, I just, Condit. I, your, your jokes that, the spelling of his last name notwithstanding. <laughs> I, I'm glad you find a bit of amusement in moments like that, Mark. I, I envy you not being dead on the inside. I uh, I find Nick Diaz to be funny. Horrible, but funny. I'm, I don't know what to do with that. Um, I right, Uh, those two things. Uh, eh, you know, be sure to check. I appear in the roundtable discussions for MMA events in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com. Uh, either this week or next week. I'm going. And when I say this week, I don't mean tomorrow. I mean, so either next week or the week after. I'm going to be in Factor Fiction in the MMA Zone over there. So I will be sure to pimp that appropriately when it comes out. Thanks to everyone. I want to who, I want, hang on, I want to say thank you to to everyone who voted for me on Factor Fiction. Last time I checked, I won. So thanks, appreciate that. Nice to win those every once in a while and not feel like everything I have to say is regarded as nonsense and and uh, poppycock. That only comes up when you take on me at this juncture, I think. <laughs> um, thanks to everyone who a couple of weeks ago read my column. It's not a, uh, an op-ed piece I did in the MMA zone of 411 Mania about the money weight dilemma that is currently facing MMA. People read it. I know you did. Uh, a few people commented. I thank you for that because that's the only way I have to judge uh, readership. I don't have access to the number of clicks my stuff gets. And to be quite honest, I don't care. If any, As long as one guy reads. I mean, most of what I write is for me. If I'm writing something like that, it's because I'm interested 
If anyone else reads and agrees, disagrees, takes the time out, God bless you. So thank you to everyone who did. Uh, seemed a lot of you agreed with my position. And yeah, thanks for that. Like, again, just the fact that people read what I write still kind of boggles my mind a little bit. So this Sunday, UFC 202, Diaz and McGregor 2. I, I had no enthusiasm for their first fight. I have less for this one, just being honest. If you feel differently, uh, God bless. Party on. Hope you have a blast. Mark, we both know you're not watching that fight. I sure am. No, you're not. You're going to fall asleep before it. <laughs> well, that's besides the point. You're going to fall asleep around the same time Glover Teixeira does when Anthony Johnson knocks his head off. At which point you will loudly declare, well, this night can't get any better. I'm out. (laughs) Let's put it this way. I will buy the pay-per-view. I promise nothing after that. Can I encourage you not to buy this pay-per-view? There's there's like one relevant fight. Donald Cerrone's, I don't know, Cerrone's story ought to be good. I always watch Come the pay-per-views. On. Come on, I'm setting you up. You are? I'll try that last line again. Donald Cerrone's fighting Rick Story. That ought to be good. Donald Cerrone. Go and get you there. some Donald Cerrone. There you go. Me. You wanted to do it. If you didn't, I, I don't have a gun to your head. No, 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 no. It's, I started playing Angry Birds again while you were doing your plugs, so I wasn't really half uh, listening. Nice to know. All right. Anyway, on that note, Mark Radliff <laughs> will return to Mark will return to hurling mm-hmm. pixelated birds across the screen. I will do my darndest to finish writing up my encounter with Clucky because I've been doing it off and on again for the last two weeks, and I really just kind of want to finish it up so I can put it out somewhere. I don't know where, but I'm going to... So are you... I'll, so- I have an important question about Clucky. Are you going to keep right. using the Foghorn Leghorn one that I sent you? Uh, I don't know. I might. I have several Clucky pictures I can use, and I try to rotate them. I think you should just. I think you should just like. If there's more than one, you should definitely use different ones. But I think the first one you should always use is Foghorn Leghorn saying, "I say, I say, whatever I see, I score twenty nine, twenty eight. That was really the like how Clucky started. Was it's true. That I... was the genesis of Clucky. Was how did you arrive at that score? Yep, I see a twenty-nine, twenty-eight. <laughs> right. And we, Can you uh, possibly my justify that, my that, that particular that. score that you came up with? Twenty-nine, twenty-eight. That guy. But he <laughs> got mounted all three that. rounds for at least two minutes apiece. Twenty-nine, twenty-eight. That guy. Um, third time. My friend and I, like the first time we, we started doing the clucky bit, it you know we we, we kept doing it as Farkhorn Leghorn. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, all right, I will. Uh, since you specifically requested it, I'll probably see about taking that on. All right, for Mark Radulich, who will hurl pixelated birds across the screen and then fall asleep and pray his son does not defecate on another piece of furniture during the night. <laughs> I will, return to, I, will, I will return to fictionalizing my encounter with Clucky. And uh, at this point, I'm probably just going like, to post it on Facebook because I don't think – I can't possibly submit that with my byline next to it. I just can't. 
what are you talking about? What you're, you're, what are you doing? Like a short story where you like find Clucky in a, uh, in a, in a subway tunnel or some shit? Well, where I drive up to Salt Lake to chase him after the event that was up there when there was that horrific score for the main event. Oh, okay. And but uh, Alex Zaris didn't end up winning that, did he? No, but one judge gave him four of the five rounds. I'm guessing he didn't deserve it. Not even I. Everyone I've talked to had it four to one for Rodriguez, myself included. Okay. I will accept a three to two for Rodriguez. Uh, Caceres clearly won. I believe it was round three, and round four was relatively close. The judge who scored that fight for Caceres actually gave him the first round too, which was asinine. Mark, you you need okay. to watch that fight just to appreciate how bad the scoring was. Well, the fight Paul itself is not up. interesting. There's a lot of spinning crap that does nothing. But to appreciate the bad scoring, you do have to actually view it. So yeah, I'm actually writing up a again fictionalized version of what might have been. Okay. I, I just need a, again, I think it's just going to wind up on Facebook where I'm, where no one's going to take the time to read the amount of words I put into it. Oh, I think, no, I think you totally submitted to more old one cat. Look, Larry's the same thing all the time. Content is king. I know, but it's so, it's, I try to at least take myself somewhat seriously with what I write to do something that is so off character for me. I'm not sure I oh. can do I'm not entirely sure I can bring myself to submit that. Have a little fun with yourself. It's okay. I can't. I'm a robot. Fun does not compute. I'm going home now. Uh, you are home. As we would say to my son. Uh, all right. Anyway, for Mark Radlich, I'm Robert Winfrey. We'll be back next year with a big summer wrap-up. I will also talk a lot about Kubo and the two strings, I imagine. Until then... Well, we thank you for listening to us ramble on occasion. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Please follow us on Facebook, uh, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, all of that. You can follow us. You get updates on our content. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for being here, and I will see, we'll see you all next week. Until then, please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.